as we begin in Matthew chapter 5, verse 33, we begin with this basic problem that is being addressed, and it's a pretty simple problem to understand, for it's simply a problem of, of deception being redefined. For as Jesus begins to talk on this issue of vows, he says these words in verse 33, again, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. As Jesus picks up in his teaching, he does something that he does a number of times in this section of his sermon. He, he introduces the topic with these words, you have heard that the ancients were told, or as you have been told. And, and when Jesus says this, he's referencing teaching that would have been familiar to everyone in his audience, specifically from the Jewish background. On this particular topic, he's referencing the way in which Jews were traditionally taught about the nature of oaths and making vows to one another. And at first glance, this quote, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord, seems to be on point, right? We would all agree with the statement. The problem with the statement, the problem with how the people had been taught traditionally by the Jewish leaders in Jesus' day, is this it doesn't really represent what the Old Testament actually says about vows. For when you look through the Old Testament, you can find a number of Old Testament teachings, Old Testament laws, that specifically address this issue. And while they do hit on this issue of being careful to use the name of the Lord in making a vow, the broad teaching in all of them is simply the teaching to be honest. That's what the law is always getting at in the Old Testament. You see this in passages like Leviticus 19 verse 12, Numbers 30, verse 2, Deuteronomy 10, 20, and, and on and on the list can go. And while we do not have time to read all of those passages this morning, one particularly helpful passage, I think, is isn't that Deuteronomy passage. For in Deuteronomy chapter 10, you have one of the examples of the way that the Old Testament deals with these oaths, with the idea of making a vow to someone. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, starting in verse 20, the people of Israel are told, this. You shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve him and cling to him, and you shall swear by his name. He is your praise, he is your God, he who has done these great and awesome things for, for you which your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt, seventy persons in all, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars in heaven. Verses like this in De Deuteronomy are particularly helpful because they both show that oaths were actually encouraged by the Old Testament law. That is to say that the people of God were directly told, as we just heard, you shall swear by God's name. In making a vow, you connect it to the name of God. But at the same time, the Israelites were reminded that, that these oaths that were encouraged were also very serious. It was important that they were not to do this in a rash manner. And the reason for that as I've already hinted at, and as you saw in Deuteronomy, hopefully, is that these vows are connected to the character of God. The reason why this law is given in Deuteronomy, the reason why a similar law is given in Leviticus 19, the reason why any law is given to the people of God upon entering into the promised land, is so as to remind the Israelites where their identity is ultimately found. And as as minor as some of these details might feel or sound when we read through books like Leviticus or Deuteronomy, they were, in the eyes of God, extremely important for by obeying these laws, in this case, by being true to one's oath, true to one's word, they were properly representing God to one another and properly reflecting God or Yahweh to the unbelieving world around them. 
And so again, as minor as the, the lesson or the law, to be honest, might seem initially, when you connect it to Israel's identity and connect it to their purpose in that Old Testament world, you see that it was a very important law. Unfortunately, like so many other laws in the Old Testament, these clear uh, commandments, to be honest, were over time distorted by God's people. And as Jesus mentioned in Matthew chapter 5 and later, in Matthew chapter 23, a passage we'll read here in a moment, the basic command to be honest for the Israelites had in essence been reduced to don't commit perjury. That is to say, if, if you swear something that is legally defined by an oath, then and only then does your word actually matter. But when you read through teachings that came out of the Jewish communities, you understand that these oaths and, and what qualified as an oath was extremely difficult to understand. For originally, in the Old Testament context, the important thing was the name of God. The important thing was the basic concept of honesty. But over time, the Israelites had thrown in a bunch of different substitutionary words to use in place of the name of God. And they did this so as to, to basically make themselves safer if they just so happened to break their commandments or break their vow. You see, Jesus hitting on this a little bit more clearly over in Matthew chapter 23, and I encourage you to look there briefly because this is a passage we'll reference later on again. Matthew chapter 23, verses 16 through 22, we get a brief look into what the Jews had specifically done to this particular law. Verse 16 of Matthew chapter 23, again there, Jesus condemning these Jewish leaders, says, Woe to you blind guides who say, Whoever swears by the temple, that is nothing. But whoever swears by the gold in the temple is obligated. You fools and blind men, which is more important, the gold or the temple that sanctified the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, that is nothing. But whoever swears by the offering on it, well, he's obligated. You blind men, which is more important, the offering or the altar that sanctifies the offering? Therefore, whoever swears by the altar swears both by the altar and everything on it. Whoever swears by the temple swears both by the temple and by him who dwells within it. And whoever swears by heaven swears both by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. In this passage, similar to the passage of Matthew 5, you see Jesus critiquing the way the law had been distorted. And you see how these Jewish leaders, again, had justified their own dishonesty by throwing in a long list of substitutions by which they were able to make Basically, an oath that was deceptive in nature. It was a way that they could swear something that looked good on the outside, but in their hearts they knew they actually had no intention of ever keeping it. And yet, this became common practice. The result, of course, of this type of practice is, is easy to understand. The result is that dishonesty was, was justifiable under Jewish law. Now, again, dishonesty does not seem something that's significant in our culture at times, but when we go back to the original intent of that Old Testament law, you quickly remember that to justify dishonesty is a huge offense to God. For not only did this lack of honesty harm the Jewish community, but ultimately it reflected poorly upon Yahweh. Ultimately, when a pagan could look at a Jewish person and say, their word means nothing more than any given pagan, what was happening is that the Roman individual was looking at this Jewish individual and saying, their God means nothing more than our gods. Their faith means nothing more than our own faith. And so by being dishonest, by distorting that, that Old Testament law, the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders, had completely lost track of, of what God was always after. The hypocrisy and their folly is, is easy to see. 
Yet, of course, as we sit here this morning, it's important for us to understand that, that we, of course, live in a culture that's not all that different. And while, we, while we hold to these visions and these ideals of honesty, while we have images like, like the popular image of someone being sworn under oath in a court of law where they put their hand on a Bible and they swear to tell the whole truth, nothing but the truth, right? We have these images. The fact is, in everyday practice, dishonesty is rampant. It's assumed in pretty much every facet of our lives. If you watch the news much, you, of course, are, are up to date on stories of, of fake news, of things that people call alternative facts, which is just another way of saying lying. It's a way of justifying and saying, no, no, this is a little bit different. Right? And regardless of where you stand politically, we, of course, live in a political climate where, where leaders can lie through their teeth and yet in which followers still justify their lies. And they say, well, you know, people just lie in the political sphere. That's just part of the game. And so we justify lies in these other areas because we say, well, this is just what people do. And, and we still support and we still praise. And we, we act as if dishonesty doesn't matter there. Closer to home, dishonesty and breaking our own words is, is sadly also common. You see it in marriages all the time when spouses swear to one another that they'll change. They won't look at that certain website ever again online. They, they won't lie anymore. They, they'll be more honest. And, and spouses, as we've been talking about the last month or so, make all sorts of promises to one another with, with no actual intention of changing. But when they don't change, of course, it's typically the fault of the other spouse. And they say, well, I would have, but, but I didn't have enough support. As parents, and this strikes close to home as well for me, we promise to let our kid do something, or we'll, pro- we'll promise we'll take them somewhere sometime because, well... We just want to get our kid off our back, right? And say, okay, just, we'll do it eventually. And even within the church walls, this type of honesty regarding promises is not all that uncommon. For how often does, does someone speak of their heartache, speak of the difficulties they're going through, and we say things like, oh, I'll, I'll be praying for you. And then we walk away and we immediately forget what we said we'd pray for. We don't actually follow through with our word, or we'll say, oh, I'll, I'll be thinking of that need, and I'll, I'll do my best to fill, and I'll do my best to help out. But we say these things without any real intention of, of following through. And so we promise service, we promise prayer, we promise all sorts of things as believers. But oftentimes when we do so, we're just paying lip service. We're just saying what we know we're supposed to say in that, in that particular social context. And if someone were to call us out on us uh, on it, most of us would have a very quick excuse at the ready. Right? We would say, well, we're too busy, or, or I'm, I'm too tired, I have too many other things on my plate. But, but we do these things. Very frequently, just like any unbeliever, we can promise to do something at work, or at home, or in the church, but we promise to do it without having any intention on the heart of actually getting it accomplished. Now again... Since we live in the culture in which we live, and since this is so frequently done, it's easy to, to shrug it off. It's easy to assume that this type of dishonesty, this idea of, of promising service or, or promising we'll do something, just doesn't seem all that big of a deal. And in fact, in the language of Matthew chapter 5, when Jesus is commanding this, this language of making vows and promises, while it might be a little foreign to us, was equally common. This was everyday language to people in that society to vow to do something, to swear to do something, this is something that was regularly done. And while we can quickly excuse it, what we have to realize is without realizing it at times, we are doing exactly what these Jewish leaders were doing. And eventually we get to the point where, like the Jewish community in Jesus' day, 
The word of the Christian, Christian community means absolutely nothing in the world in which we live. Right? The world looks at our own promises. They see the way we treat each other. They see the way that we fail to come through on certain vows we make. And the result is they assume we're just like them. The result is they assume that our faith is, is no more important than their own faith, that our God is no different from their God. And so while we overlook it, we can mistakenly not only be mis- misrepresenting ourselves, but misrepresenting the name of our God whom we serve. So this is, in fact, a very serious matter and one that is clearly important for Jesus to address. Having addressed that problem, having named this popular form of deception in his culture, Jesus moves on with a correction. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 34 through 37, we read it earlier, but again, let's read this correction from Jesus. But I say to you, Make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black, but let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond these is of evil. As Jesus brings up this correction, he does so basically by reemphasizing honesty, reemphasizing that which the law always intended to communicate. In reemphasizing and bringing this correction, Jesus first exposes how illogical the sinful thinking of humanity is. Right? Again, to reference that passage later on in Matthew, Matthew chapter 23, Jesus in essence here is saying it's, it's ridiculous to try to section off areas of your life and pretend that you can somehow stand outside of God's rule, of God's reign. Again, to read that passage we mentioned earlier over in Matthew chapter 23, as Jesus speaks of the illogical um, inconsistencies of his people, he says this regarding their oaths. Woe to you blind guides who say whoever swears by the temple that is nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the temple is obligated. You fools and blind men, which is more important? The gold or the temple that sanctified the gold? In a similar manner back in Matthew 5, he, he speaks of this idea of, of making a vow by, by heaven or by earth and and pretending that if you choose one or the other, that somehow your dishonesty can be justified. But the comment of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus, is very clear. It's the fact that God rules over everything. You can't stand outside of a church building and think that a lie you say out there is somehow less offensive than a lie you utter within the church walls. That's ridiculous. That's, that's silly. Because God is just as much king over the parking lot as he's king of the sanctuary. His reign doesn't stop because we exit the doors. In a similar way with the Jewish people in Jesus' day, the reign of, of God and God's perfect rule did not somehow cease once you left the, the, the city of Jerusalem. It continued out. Jerusalem itself is his footstool. The earth is, is God's footstool. He watches over everything. And so to use that cultural image that we referenced earlier, the image of, of being in a, a court of law and swearing on a Bible, the point that Jesus is making here is, is we're always inside that court of law. Everything we are uttering, we're uttering in front of the judge of all creation. It's impossible to escape his notice. It's impossible to do anything outside of his rule, regardless of how tempting it might be to compartmentalize our faith and act one way at church, but act another way at home and act another way in the, in the corporate world. As tempting as that is, it's, it's illogical. It's foolish. It, It shows a complete lack of understanding of God's sovereign reign over everything. And so Jesus exposes that line of thinking and reminds us that 
that our faith is to influence every single thing we do, every single thing we think and say. Having exposed that illogical, fallible sense of thinking, Jesus moves on again and he he re-emphasizes this concept of biblical clarity. We can read these words of Jesus when he says, You shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no, no oath at all, either by heaven or by earth. And we can read these words and think, oh, this, this is a radical statement Jesus is making. And, and to a certain extent it is. It would have been shocking for his audience to hear. But at the same time, this is nothing that should surprise anyone familiar with the Bible. For as we read throughout all of Scripture... God always clearly teaches that that all speech matters. Everything we say matters. And and the Bible is equally clear in making it um, apparent that, that God's glory is always the main concern. Throughout the Old Testament, you have many laws that speak to this concept of honesty. One of the clearest ones is found back in the book of Zechariah. And in Zechariah chapter 8, we read these verses in 16 through 17. Again, God's speaking to his people. These are things which you should do. Speak the truth to one another. Judge with truth and judgment for peace in your gates. Also, let none of you devise evil in your heart against one another. Do not love perjury, for all these are what I hate, declares the Lord. The people of God should have known that he hates lying. The people of God should have known, especially the people who are the teachers of the law, should have known that any form of dishonesty is atrocious in the eyes of God. And all these teachers should have been familiar with the language of Deuteronomy, the language of Leviticus, that reminds them time and time again what we already mentioned, that that their obedience is tied to the glory of God. The biblical law could not be any clearer. This is true throughout the Old Testament, and it remains equally true throughout the New, and particularly here in the Sermon on the Mount. And so as Jesus speaks here, as he continues to speak on the basic law of God or the basic teachings of the kingdom, what he is doing is not necessarily saying anything brand new. He's simply reemphasizing both that clarity and reemphasizing the kingdom priority. If you've been with us throughout the study on the Sermon on the Mount, this emphasis on kingdom identity is nothing new to us. For from the very beginning... In verses 1 through 11, there is this regular refrain, right? If you look back at Matthew chapter 5. 5 verse 3, this opening verse, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom in heaven. You move on to verse 5, Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. You move on and continue to read verse 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Verse 10, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. From the beginning, time and time again, the clear point of Jesus Christ is, is to point out who are the actual individuals who are members of God's kingdom. Who can be said to qualify as God's people? This is the constant refrain, to not impress one another, but strive to do that which God has called you to do. In other words, when Jesus says, let your yes be yes and your no be no, he is simply telling us, that if we claim to be members of God's kingdom, then our lives ought to look like it. It doesn't matter what the world says. It doesn't matter that your, your average person or a culture can easily compartmentalize their ethics. Who cares if, if an unbelieving employee can be a, dis, a dishonest employee at work, 
but still maintain honesty at home. Who, who cares if they uphold that, that standard? We are in Christ, therefore we strive to be honest both at work and at home. Who cares if, if certain politicians lie through their teeth? We understand we live by the laws of God's kingdom, and so we never support it. We never speak highly of deception. We understand that we live under a separate law. We understand we live by that entirely different standard. And as such, we understand that we cannot simply look like the rest of the world around us. Instead, we must be very, very careful to look, not just like Americans, but to look like citizens of God's kingdom. To sound not just like Americans, but to sound like members of God's kingdom. As such, we are reminded here that that we must be very careful when it comes to how we speak, and in particular, when we choose to, to make an oath, when we choose to swear any given vow. Now, in speaking of this kingdom priority, in speaking of this wisdom and speech, it is important to not be overly simplistic over what Jesus is saying. For a number of people over the years have taken verses like these in 33 through 37, and they've said, okay, the application here is never going to make an oath, never going to make a promise. And so there's certain sects of professing believers who won't serve in the army, won't serve in the military, they, they won't swear by anything in a court of law because they say that's directly contradicting Jesus' teaching. And while initially this seems to be what Jesus is getting at, if we can just simply take a step back, and appreciate both the words of Christ here in Matthew 5, but also the words of Christ found throughout Scripture, we understand that, again, living in God's kingdom is is something that's not to be reduced in such a simplistic manner. For as we read throughout Scripture, the fact is that that oaths are still okay as we read through Scripture. I know that might seem contradictory to what Jesus is saying here. But throughout Scripture, there are many people of faith who, who say things under oath who swear things and do so while being blessed by God. We read this earlier in passages like Deuteronomy and and Leviticus, but even throughout the New Testament, you see references to oaths. Perhaps most importantly, you see it even in the language used in Jesus' own trial. In Matthew chapter 26, as he's being put on trial, verses 63 through 64, We read these words, Jesus kept silent, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are Christ, the Son of God. In essence, the high priest is is forcing him to make a vow, forcing him to swear by the name of God. And Jesus said to him, you said it yourself, nevertheless I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power, coming in the clouds of heaven. The significance here for our discussion this morning is that Jesus doesn't correct the high priest for using this type of language. Jesus goes through and and honors this type of language, for the high priest is simply using clear language of the Old Testament law. Even beyond Christ, you see the Apostle Paul use similar language in his own epistles, where he swears by certain things in order to to add emphasis to what he is teaching to the Romans, in Romans 1.9 or Romans 9, uh, verse 1. In 2 Corinthians 1, verse 23, Paul uses this sort of language Again, to highlight the importance of what he is trying to teach. So again, in applying the words of Christ, it is important to not be so simplistic as to say, okay, if if I never make an oath, this is fulfilling the law. Rather, we must understand Jesus is primarily concerned not with with just how we make oaths, but how we treat our oaths and how we treat our everyday speech. 
Jesus is not simply concerned that you and I do not make a false oath. He's concerned that we are actually honest with the people with whom we deal with on a regular basis. And so we can make an oath, assuming we hold to it. We can promise to do certain things, assuming we do intend to actually accomplish it. As we do these things, we do so connected to the name of God. And as we do these things, we're simply striving to again reflect our citizenship that is found in heaven. Now, as a side note, before we move into the final point of encouragement, it is important to understand that Jesus here is not giving us license to just be jerks with the world around us. Right? While we are told to be honest, while we are told to, to never lie about anything, we are not told to simply say everything that crosses our minds and say, well, Jesus says speech is important, so I've got to be honest. Right? That's not the point of any text like this. Right? We are commanded to be honest, we're commanded to keep our oaths, but we're also commanded to just be wise and to use other characteristics from the Sermon on the Mount, like meekness. We're, to, we're told to be loving, we're told to be merciful, and so being honest does not give us license to simply say what we want to say. It's, it's giving us license and giving us a reminder that we must be careful in choosing whatever words we allow to ex- escape from our lips. And so, again, understanding this, we must take very seriously these words of Jesus Christ. And it's tempting at this point to to close. Even as I was preparing this message, and and preparing any message from the Sermon on the Mount, there is a tendency and a temptation to read words like this from Christ, to say, okay, don't make oaths, and, and to close. The problem that I think oftentimes we face in reading through a Sermon on the Mount, if we're if we're honest, is Jesus' words feel like kind of a beating sometimes, don't they? In all, in all honesty. Jesus' words seem a little unnecessarily weighty and heavy, and, and by those standards, Jesus' words seem to directly contradict other promises were given in passages like the one that Pastor Andy read earlier that, that speak of the fact that obedience is to be a joy and it's not to be burdensome at all. And so it's vitally important in applying these words of Christ that we do not turn his sermon into some tale of moralism. And that we as Christians do not hear the words of Christ and apply them or hear them as if Jesus is just saying, just be better and do better and that's all I want. No, that's, that's not the point. If we really understand the correction that Jesus offers, and if we really appreciate the problem that he is trying to solve for us, we understand that, that there is an implicit encouragement found within this text. And that encouragement is quite simply freedom in the gospel. For in addressing this common problem and commanding us to keep our oaths and commanding us to be people of our word, Jesus is also speaking of freedom that we have as believers. For when you look at the reasons why we lie, when you look at the reasons why you say things like, I'll pray for you, I'll do this, I'll do that, when you look at reasons why at work we swear that we'll be a better employee than we can be, ultimately there's, There's typically a a common reason why we feel so motivated to overextend ourselves. That reason stems from from being overly concerned with how our peers view us. We want to sound more spiritual than we actually are. We want to sound more sacrificial than we actually are. We want to sound smarter than we actually are. And so we lie and we promise to do certain things, hoping that we are somehow making ourselves look respectable in the eyes of the world without realizing it, oftentimes even as Christians, we are controlled by this fear of of how our fellow man views us. 
And when we are controlled by that, we will inevitably be driven to lie about all sorts of things. We'd be driven to make all sorts of promises and then try to justify ourselves when we fail to uphold our words. But if we understand the the principles of God's kingdom, and if we're really striving to live as citizens of God's kingdom, as we obey the words of Christ here, we and our hearts are being set free from that fear of man. For as citizens of the kingdom, we understand it doesn't matter what people think of us. It doesn't matter if people think we're exceptionally smart or exceptionally sacrificial. It doesn't matter if people look at us and they think, oh, they're they're willing to do anything and everything people want to do. We should desire to, to be seen as sacrificial, but that is not where our contentment is found. No, as we live as members of God's kingdom, we begin with this basic understanding that we are resting entirely in the work of Christ. And so the reason why we can choose to not make a certain promise The reason why we can choose to not make a certain vow is because we understand ultimately we're resting in what Christ has already done for us and we understand that the opinion of our peers is not essential. And so when we're encouraged to be honest, we're encouraged to live out our vows, live out the promises that that we make, we are simply being encouraged to continually rest on that gospel, remembering that we are saved entirely in Christ and so anything we do in this life is not for us, but it's for his own glory. And considering and remembering the fact that, that in our honesty and our striving to, to fulfill our word, our ultimate goal is not to impress upon people our own impressive stature, but it's to impress upon other people the stature of Christ. This ultimately is the hope of everything Jesus Christ commands throughout his Sermon on the Mount. It's that as we live out this identity, people might look at us and they might not see us, but they might see the character of Christ. They might see that we live by different standards. We live by a different rule And we are therefore making the gospel as attractive as it ought to be. And so my encouragement to all of us as we consider these words, and any words of Christ when it comes to the Sermon on the Mount, is to remember this freedom. And remember that the calling of Christ is never to just be a a more morally upright individual. It's simply to reflect the love that Christ has given us, and it's to reflect the glory that that has been revealed to us. And so as we close, as we consider all of these things, There are a number of points that we can think of when it comes to application. For unbelievers, the words of Christ honestly ought to be a beating to you. In all honesty. Because when you understand that this is the standard of God's law, you should quickly understand that you fall far, 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 far short of it. Right? When you understand that you are called to be perfectly honest, when you are called in other passages to never commit lust, when you are called to be perfectly merciful, when you are called to, to long and hunger after that which is righteous and that which is righteous alone, every single unbeliever ought to be able to quickly acknowledge they fall far short of Jesus' commands of perfection. But again, as you hear these words of Christ, please hear the fact that the Christianity is not a religion that simply calls you in for you to be moralistic or that calls you in to be a better person. It's a faith that is found in Jesus Christ and the calling of the Sermon on the Mount, as always then, is for you to simply repent of your sins, acknowledge that you fall far short, and place your faith in Jesus Christ. By doing so, you are sealed. By doing so, you are given this life and given this new identity. For my brothers and sisters in Christ, There is, indeed, a weighty reminder in in these verses. While we do not want to walk away just feeling like we've been beaten over the heads with the word of Christ, 
there is something significant to Jesus' words when it comes to examining our own honesty. And we must ask ourselves then, are we men and women of, of true integrity? Does your word mean anything more than the word of someone who is completely outside of the grace of Christ? When people hear you say that you will promise to do things, or when people hear you say that you promise to serve them in a certain way, should they be able to just trust your word and walk away fully believing that you, because you are in Christ, will fulfill it? Or do people hear our words in the same way they hear the words of, of any given media outlet or any given politician they already do not trust? We must remember the standard. And in the same way that the Old Testament law was intended to slow the speech of the Israelites, the words of Christ here are intended to slow our own speech. And so we must be very careful when we speak. We must be very careful to not overextend ourselves and our service. But instead, we must consistently seek to represent the truth and seek to represent the level of integrity that Christ modeled.